All right. Welcome back. Welcome back. Here we are once again. Don't crack up a commuters podcast. The month has turned. It is now August. The year is 2021. I am your host, Patrick. Patrick Markey. Hello. How are you? I hope you're well. To all five of my listeners, you're the best. Thank you for your time. Uh, Very, very special episode this time. Very special. We're going to talk about we're listening to the royal we, that is, things I'm watching. And, of course, we're going to talk about Party Down. And guess what? This week, deep dive on Kyle Bradway, played by the immortal Ryan Hansen. Can't wait for all that. I'm sure you can't. That's going to be exciting. I think I'm going to retitle this Um the Podcast. So I want to apologize to you, my beloved listener, for the 10,000 ums uh, in editing all this. I hear it over and over and over again. I'm sorry. I'm really trying to work on it. Okay. Progress, progress. Let's do that. A little commuting note. Today, as I was driving home, uh, I experienced this phenomenon over and over and over again. And that is additional construction, right? Let's say there's three lanes on the highway. A sign says, hey, in a half mile, the left lane closes, merge left. Car after car saw this sign and accelerated. Uh, Please don't do that. Okay, the sign is real. They really did mean that the lane was going to end in a half mile. And guess what it did? And all those people are up there waiting. It's backed up traffic. All right, I'm sorry. That's a negative start. (sighs) Breathe deep. Let's be positive. What an exciting day. You know what today is? Today's a, a, a day of remembrance. And that's what I'm going to start off. Let's go right away. What am I listening to? Let's get to it. Okay. What am I listening to? Well, it's a day of remembrance. This is a special edition of what I'm listening to. No audiobook to talk about, just music. Are you ready? Eight years ago, we lost somebody who, in my mind, was a genius, an artistic genius, that being Josh Bunny Poe. That's right. Tragically, we lost Bunny Poe eight years ago. And in honor of uh, his passing and remembering him in remembrance of. I like to do the, the, the ultimate compliment in my mind, which is play his music. And uh, driving down the highway, this very day I was doing that. And I want to talk to you about that. This man, Josh Poe, Bunny Poe, that is. Again, I said genius. Why do I say that? He was the master of multiple artistic forms. He just seemed to instinctively know and understand it. And he seemed to have countless ideas. And I'll talk more about that. Two songs in particular I like to listen to all the time. This is on my rotation all the time in the old phone, you know, with the MP3s and you make your playlists. One song being Theme from Lambs of the Hard Miracle. Another song being Bogle Ridge Academy. In parentheses, Return of the Dean. Yes, that's right. Two tracks from the self-titled debut album by the Boaz Philharmonic. Uh, As you, I'm sure, remember, the Boaz Philharmonic was Bunny Poe and Zach Keith. Hope that Zach's doing well. 
should he ever hear this. Great uh, album. That was the first one. They had another album. I also have a, an album called Phantom of the Smoot by Bunny Poe. And guess what? Right now, it's in my left hand. All three of those albums I talked to you, you hear that? There they are in my left hand. You have to take my word for it or don't. But I'm telling you, it's true. In fact, my Phantom of the Smoot is autographed by Bunny Poe. So that's a very special item that I have here. And this was a man who was way ahead of his time. And I hope that he knows or he knew uh, how much I uh, looked up to him and regarded him and was inspired by him, quite frankly. He was so far ahead of his time, it's incredible. 20 years ago, and when I say ahead of his time, he was the first person I knew who was creating things and then putting it right out there to the public using the internet. To my knowledge, it was not uh, common back then, but you know, maybe that's just the way I remember things. And when you think to this year, 2021, and how you can put stuff on YouTube so easily, and you can put things out there like this, for example, so easily, which is you know very common now, obviously, but not so much back then, or at least that's my recollection. He was able to mythologize an area that I was living in, in southeast Ohio and to the West Virginia border area. He took it and he made it into something bigger multiple multiple mythologies and there was so much there it was hard to keep up with the fact that he was able to put things out there uh, inspired me to try anything i've ever written any fiction which if you look hard enough you can see a couple of those stories online you can find them music and the fact that i could write and put it out there terrible as it is inspired by josh and by the way that's online somewhere some of those songs songs from like a decade ago if you look hard enough they're there the fact that this podcast exists inspired by bunny poe again i just can't tell you how much it meant to see somebody who had these ideas who had art in him make it put it out there and go for it in his way i was privileged to see the boaz philharmonic at least twice once in Columbus, Ohio, once in Youngstown, Ohio. Again, the highest compliment I can give is driving down the highway, commuting, blasting some Boaz Philharmonic. Let me talk in particular about these tracks. And you might say, who, you know, how do I listen to any of this? Some of the songs are online. The website is ReverbNation.com slash BunnyPoe slash songs. I think I'm going to put that link in the description. Now I sound like a YouTube video, right? Uh, I think I'll, I'll put that down there. ReverbNation.com slash BunnyPoe slash songs. And you know, honestly, I feel terrible doing this. I feel like I'm selling him short. And I just, this is with all sincerity, my, my, my praise and remembrance of him. The track theme from Lamps of the Hard Miracle. It is an instrumental track. I like, it's like space rock. It is a great traveling song, driving song. It's a song of movement, of momentum. I love the guitar parts. If you listen closely, the production is very, very impressive. How many different layers there are, how much is going on with the instrumentation, but it takes you to a place. And it is one of the great zone out songs. It's a song after a day of, you know, the boss breaking you down. Pump that in there. 
turn it on high, crank it up, put it on repeat, and zone out, and go to a better place. Another track I've told you about, Bogle Ridge Academy, in parentheses, Return of the Dean. This is a song, I know it's on that website for sure, ReverbNation.com slash BunnyPost slash songs. One of the great lyrics in the history of music, that being, this is to get your face out of my face face. Think about that. Listen to the song, think about it, and live it. The Bogle Ridge Academy, this goes deep into the mythos that he created, that he and, and, and Zach, the Boaz Philharmonic, deep, deep, deep into their mythos. Uh, in fact, I probably I can't do it justice, so hopefully you can find that online. But it's all there. And just the idea you take wherever you are and make it into something bigger and use it as inspiration. Can't thank him enough for all he did. Miss him. And I'm still listening after all these years, and that's going to keep going. That's going to keep happening. Not only that, I'm sharing it, okay? That's all I can do. You're missed. But, you know, that brings me to the next thing. I want to talk about what else I'm listening to. And that is Kevin Ayers. The song is Town Feeling. Again, speaking of Bunny Poe, the last conversation I had with him, I believe it was New Year's Eve 2011, keeping things full circle, keeping that, that synergy there. I had just started commuting earlier in 2011 and I listened over and over to the album Joy of a Toy by Kevin Ayers. That's from 1969. That's Kevin Ayers' debut. Who is Kevin Ayers? So he used to be in the band called The Soft Machine. I would call him a contemporary to Sid Barrett. In fact, Sid Barrett played guitar on the song Religious Experience. It's not on the album, but it was. it's available now. You can get that. You can get that, I think, on Amazon. Okay? And so this conversation I had with Josh, with Bunny Poe, I was talking to him about uh, how much I'd been listening to and enjoying the album Joy of a Toy, and it turns out he himself was a big Kevin Ayers fan. And he talked about the song, in particular, Town Feeling, which is why uh, I love to listen to it around this time of year. But here's the thing, the song Town Feeling, from the album Joy of a Toy, 1969, it is a song that holds up any time of year. I've mentioned some of these other songs. You know, this is a great uh, sunny song. I talked about that uh, last time, Jeremiah Sand with Amulet of the Weeping Maze, how that is a great sunny weather song, in my opinion. Uh, not to say it's not good any other times, but just in particular. But Town Feeling by Kevin Ayers is a universal song. It is rainy. It's sunny. It's snowing. You get it. It's always there. And it's always right. It's a song that is essentially a existential sigh. This is what it means to me. You have the perspective of the person singing it. And they are sort of lamenting the repression of the town. Lamenting being repressed by the societal structure that they find themselves in as you know personified by the town and talking about how this societal structure is holding them back from is having meaningful relationships or that these relationships could be deeper that there's something more that they could all be experiencing together but they can't however this individual that we're listening to they are still trying to be cheerful through it all. 
it's not a song of hate in any way. It's a song that is sort of acknowledging what they're experiencing. Just think of yourself driving down the road and you're running late and you sigh. And that's town feeling. Eh, that's one version of it. That's one way to experience it. But it has this universal quality that it applies to so very many other situations. And I think you will have that same experience if you give it a try. The song is Town Feeling by Kevin Ayers. It's on the album Joy of a Toy. Highly recommended song, highly recommended album. In fact, I love many of his other albums like Shooting at the Moon, Sweet Deceiver. Excellent, excellent stuff. Highly recommended. So with that, let's remember Bunny Poe. Let's keep him in our heart and let's keep him in our ears. Let's listen to his music and keep it alive, okay? ReverbNation.com slash Bunny Poe slash songs. You can get them right now. You can go listen to them. And Kevin Ayers, Town Feeling. Oh, by the way, I was recently told that uh, Bunny Poe is a fan of Party Down. So there we go. Again, synergy, full circle. Okay, let's go on. Let's move on, onward. All right, let's get to it. Here we go. What have I been watching? Well, since it is a special episode, we've got Bunny Poe on our mind. I want to talk about two things I was watching this week. Two, that's right. John from Cincinnati, the HBO series, and Midsommar, the director's cut. I said I would talk about that on the last episode, so I'm going to do it. Before I get there, you know what time it is for all my three faithful listeners, the greatest people in the world thinking about you uh, every week so far, or every episode, that is to say. Checked in with the Lizzie Kaplan Shared Universe for full uh, background and explanation. Listen to the first episode. You see that? That's a tease. That is a, an invitation to, to listen, listen, listen. Uh, and here we go. Briefly, what is it? It's the theory, the concept, the idea, the clickbait, I don't know, that uh, all of the performances or the works that uh, Lizzie Kaplan has been in in some way are related to the movie Save the Date from 2012. Either there's a similar plot point or there's an actor who is in another one of the works or there's a similar plot point to another work that she's in that then relates to Save the Date. For more information, listen to the prior episodes. This one, this week, a movie called Orange County, starring Colin Hanks and Jack Black. Uh, Lizzie Kaplan has a small part in this as a party girl. I think that's the name of the role uh, at uh, Stanford. And guess what? I've got two points to make that relate Orange County to save the date. First, a big one, uh, core of the movie Orange County is this kind of conflict in these two very different siblings. Uh, one sibling is goal-oriented and has future plans, and the other does not. And that being Colin Hanks' character being goal-oriented, they want to get to Stanford, etc. Jack Black's character 
not so much. They're just living in a disorganized way. Well, guess what, folks? That also is very similar to a core plot element of Save the Date. One sibling is goal-oriented. In this case, it would be to get married, that be being Alison Bree's character. The other sibling is not. Uh, they don't have those type of plans. Uh, they're more disorganized, that being Lizzie Kaplan's Sarah character. Boom, there you go. Put another one in this imaginary diagram that someday, maybe, someone will, will make a visual representation of. But that's not it, folks. There is one more connection. That being, are you ready for this? It's going to tie to our Party Down discussion in that this party in the movie Orange County, where Lizzie Kaplan's character is, guess who else is there? A guy. A guy played by Nate Faxon. Who's that, you ask? Well, that is the actor who plays Garland Greenbush in Season 2, Episode 7 of Party Down. He's the rival to Casey Klein, played by Lizzie Kaplan. That's right. They're battling it out for the championship at the Party Down Company picnic. And, of course, Martin Starr is in, or stars in, both Save the Date and Party Down. So anything Party Down is easy fodder for the shared universe. So there's another connection. All right, enough. Let's move on. There'll be more next episode. I've got another movie to add to it that I haven't watched yet. But we'll figure something out. Next, here's a quick hitter I want to drop on you. I want to share with you. Real quick, I saw the movie Censor. That is uh, a horror movie, or it's called a horror movie. I would say it's also a psychological drama. And uh, it's one of those early releases you can watch on Amazon, iTunes also. And what is it? Well, I want to preface this by saying if you're going into it expecting some kind of slasher horror, you're going to be disappointed. If you go into it uh, expecting a psychological horror character study, I think you're going to love it. I I loved it. And it also related, in in my mind, to the recent discussion about Bartleby the Scribner by Herman Melville. Uh, Not the movie version, where Crispin Glover played Bartleby. But that idea of, you know, Bartleby worked in the dead letter office and the impact that that type of job would have on a person. Same thing happens here in Censor. If you are a censor, uh, what does that do? Who are the people that have that role? And... People aren't robots. And so we bring to these jobs whatever our past is, whether there be trauma or not. And so what happens when you're put in that position? Uh, Good movie. I liked it. Recommended. So let's move on. Let's talk about John from Cincinnati. That was an HBO series. Uh, If I remember correctly, it came on after The Sopranos, maybe? Anyway... It's a show that I watched at the time, loved it. Uh, at some point, got the DVD, which I also recommend the, because it has um, some audio commentary. So if you really like the show, you can get you can go deeper that way. But I hadn't watched it in several years, and I just got the feeling. I don't know what it was, what prompted it, but I got the feeling. Went through it. It's um, ten episodes, and went by in a couple nights. Just loved it. Uh, And let me tell you something about John from Cincinnati. It is created by David Milch and Kim Nunn. 
David Milch of Deadwood fame. And much like Deadwood, uh, there's no hand-holding in John from Cincinnati. You have to pay attention. I would say it's difficult, you know, in 2021 with uh, the smartphones and the scrolling. You're not going to be able to do that, in my opinion, and really get the full John from Cincinnati experience. In 2008, that wasn't an issue, was it? Anyway, well, there was computers and things like that, laptops, but still, not the prevalence of distraction that we have even now in 2021. So, John from Cincinnati. I'm going to start off by saying I do recommend uh, closed captioning because there is a lot of information uh, that if you're not paying attention, you'll miss. And I think one way to help with that would be to put on closed captioning. But what is it? Well, it is a show that is about confronting trauma. My perspective of it. Confronting trauma, confronting grief, acknowledging pain with community support, empathy, and it it also strikes the tone, sort of the party down tone of, you know, a family or a community is who's around you, who is supporting you. And it, it's that to a extreme degree. You know, this is a collection of um, unusual characters, unusual people, deeply flawed people, but there is good in all of them for all the horrible things they say to each other and all the horrible things they've done to each other. It is a show about redemption, and it is a show about the power of, of kindness and, uh, and working through our problems together. First of all, acknowledging them, and that's one of the big issues in this show. There's no progress until there's an acknowledgement of what has happened. But John from Cincinnati, the titular John, is played by Austin Nichols and give him a lot of credit because how do you play this role? Well, what is John? John shows up suddenly at this beach in California and he sees the eldest of the Yost family. So the kind of the core of this show is the Yost family. Uh, there's a, you know, grandfather, Mitch Yost. The middle is Butchie Yost, who is the son of Mitch and then the father of Sean Yost. And all three are surfers, so you have these three generations. Then you have Sissy Yost, played by Rebecca De Mornay, who is the the mother of Butchie, the grandmother of Sean. And you have this cast of characters around them in this community. It was at Imperial Beach, I believe, is where it's supposed to take place, or that's the name of the community. And then one day, John shows up. And John being a being. There's a supernatural element Certainly heavy, heavy biblical parallels and biblical allusions throughout the series. I just want to give particular credit to Rebecca De Mornay, who plays a great role of just someone who is hysterical. But with all these characters, the show fleshes out why. Why do they act this way? Why do they treat each other this way? What has happened? Uh, Brian Van Holt plays... Butchie. And the more I watch the show, the more I'm impressed with that performance. And I really think that performance carries the show. He's the glue that kind of holds it all together. He plays Butchie Yost, who's a fallen surfer. He was famous. He made breakthroughs in in the sport. And he's, he's now, you know, shooting heroin and he's in bad shape. And it's him as a fulcrum for everything that's happening with John. And so give him a ton of credit. Ed O'Neill is is excellent in the show, playing a retired police officer who 
uh, has a, a a parental relationship almost with Sean Yost, the youngest uh, boy, and just great communal experience. The show's about spiritual rebirth, and it's really interesting concepts are brought up, nature versus nurture, language as both a means of improving life, but also as a barrier. You know, we, we know only what we are taught. And so can we communicate with one another, even if we don't have you know, proper language skills? And if you watch the show, and I'm talking in particular about John, you uh, will understand that. And then what is listening, right? Not just hearing the words, but also what is being conveyed so that things that may sound threatening, in fact, are not threatening if you are truly listening. Uh, so surfing is a big theme in it, you know, riding the waves and just uh, beauty, really trying to convey beauty and spiritual healing through that. And interesting concept really ahead of its time in that the show anticipates uh, the rise of media even even more than it was in 2008 you know with the things that the connections we have and the fact that you can hear this that i can make this and put it on the internet and people can hear it uh, that the show anticipates that it talks about using the that medium as a way to to heal and in fact using advertising as a sort of a backdoor way to send a a good message so way ahead of its time with those concepts and it is a shame that it only lasted one season uh, I think because it didn't hold hands, it was just too much for some people. So love it. Can't say enough thing, good things about it. Watch it. John from Cincinnati. If you have HBO, there it is. DVD. And, you know, it's a nice thing right now. If you're willing to go online, DVDs are cheap used, so you can get it, I'm sure, at a great price. Well worth your time. Love it. John from Cincinnati. Next. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Midsommar, the director's cut, written and directed by Ari Aster. And yes, I'm calling it Midsommar instead of Midsummer because Ari Aster calls it that. If you've, He's got a lot of interviews about it, and uh, in all of those interviews, he calls it Midsommar. Well, it does have an AR instead of an ER, so that makes sense, doesn't it? Midsommar from 2019, that's when the theatrical cut came out, and uh, was privilege to see it in the theater when it came out and that was a very interesting experience i'm gonna avoid any specific spoilers i'm gonna have a vague commentary on the the movie both the theatrical cut and the director's cut but because it's only two years old it's still in that well within that spoiler threshold so let's just talk vaguely about it uh, there are some scenes in there let's let's say there's a scene related to procreation and to see that in a packed theater was quite an experience. And there was a lot of laughter, almost nervous laughter. What else are you going to do? Um, so that was that was interesting. Then, then, now it's a true story. I was able to see it a second time in the theater in what was basically a private screening. The theater by my house, uh, there's two in town. One stopped playing this movie right away. I think after a week they took it out. Uh, but another theater uh, kept playing it. And it was like a Wednesday night, and I, I had this sense, or looking at the schedule, it was going to change, it was going to be gone. So, uh, like a 9 o'clock show on a Wednesday night, and I was the only one there. I was the only one there, so private screening of Midsommar. Can't beat that. Well, the movie stars Florence Pugh as Danny. What a performance that is. 
which now you know she stars in Black Widow with uh, Scarlett Johansson. Jack Renner as uh, Christian, who is Danny's boyfriend, and their relationship sort of helps form the core of the film. And what is it about? Well, it is a movie, vaguely, let's say, the core of it is about a relationship, but it's a horror movie in that it's, it follows sort of the tradition of pagan European horror. If you've seen the original Wicker Man, you might know what I'm talking about, Christopher Lee in that movie from the 70s. But this is a daylight horror. They're, uh, they're in Sweden, and the sun is shining all the time, so it's not a, you know, it's in the dark looking around. No, that's not it. You see what's happening. You see what's going to happen. And ultimately, this has to do with following the journey of Danny and all she experiences uh, in this communal setting. And I do have to make a party down reference here as well for two reasons. One, because it does touch on the theme of community and a support group, uh, even if it's non-traditional. Although in Midsommar, it's certainly a far dar darker tone that we're talking about here. And really, the movie kind of shows the attraction of cults, right? Addressing insecurities and being there to take you in to fill those gaps you might be feeling uh, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. But also, uh, as far as something to watch, you know, when you watch Party Down multiple times, you see these different things that are happening in the background different characters' reactions. Same thing with this uh, movie, both the theatrical version and the director's cut. Midsommar is, it's got this incredible set that it takes place in once they get to Sweden. And it's the kind of place that you just, you are living in and you want to, and you look around and each time you watch it, you notice something different. Uh, just really beautiful. The artwork that was made for this, uh, it, which is hanging on the walls or which is painted on the walls of kind of the living quarters and all the different um, houses and the temple, really incredible stuff. So it, it's just really visually a uh, beautiful movie and, and still beautiful while some horrible things are happening. So highly, highly recommended, but it, it, it you know, it touches on those themes of uh, relationships, insecurity, ignorance, and, and the difference between academia and, you know, the real world, let's put it that way. Uh, that's sort of a, a topic that is touched on in this movie. Now, the theatrical cut is like two hours and 20-something minutes. The director's cut, which I got through the A24, that's the studio, the website. And it comes with, it's a beautiful package. It's got this, it comes in almost like a book form. And it's got all the artwork in the movie. It looks great. And uh, it's two hours and 50 minutes long, so it's substantially longer. And what happens in those additional you know, 30 minutes approximately? Well, it's an interesting thing in that the, this relationship between Danny and Christian, there is a lot more time spent in the director's cut. We see them interact a lot more. And so we get an e even more insight into their relationship. There are moments where we are spending more time with 
uh, each character and the scenes, you know, they don't, there's no hard cut. You're sitting there and they keep going much like if you watched Twin Peaks, The Return, you know, that happens throughout. In a traditional show, maybe the scene ends and you move on. Twin Peaks, The Return, you sat there and, and you stayed with it because that's how David Lynch likes it, you know. And, and by the way, I do want to say, uh, sp speaking of Twin Peaks, The Return, and John from Cincinnati, hate to jump back, but I just want to throw this out there real quick. If you saw Twin Peaks, The Return, and you know that arc or the, the character Dougie Jones and what happens in Las Vegas, you're going to see parallels in John from Cincinnati. John from John from Cincinnati, very much like Dougie Jones uh, in Twin Peaks, this kind of blank slate that goes around and uh, really brings out the goodness in people. So there you go. You didn't think we were going to go there? We did. Getting back to Midsommar, uh, there's some additional scenes in the director's cut. Of course there is. That's why it's the director's cut. But ritual scenes, you, you learn more about the the way the Harga, which is the cult or the community in Sweden, you learn more about how their group operates, how they function. And here's the main difference. The main difference is with these additional scenes at the end of the movie, and I'm not going to tell you what happens, but at the end of the movie, here's the vaguest thing I will tell you. There is a scene where you are looking at a character, okay? At the end of the movie, there is a scene, and you are looking at a, char at a character. In the theatrical cut, I would say there is more ambiguity. Um, as you look at the character and try to understand what you are seeing, the director's cut really changes that because there's all this additional uh, information you have when you view that last scene. I think it completely changes, at least for me, how I interpret the last scene and I think that's one of the big differences in the director's cut there's sort of a removal of of some ambiguity about certain things that are happening and actually I think it's good ambiguity so I, I don't necessarily think it's it's better and in fact if you have not seen Midsommar I really advise you in my opinion theatrical cut definitely and if you like that and you watch it again and you really want to see more then go to the director's cut and that's just my opinion I also want to give a special uh, nod to Bobby Krillick. That's who does the score, and it is a great, great score. So great that I got the, the vinyl. There's two tracks in particular. Called, one's The Blessing, and one's called Fire Temple. And I, I just, those are some songs to put on repeat. Excellent, excellent stuff. So there you go. I wanted to talk about it, but, you know, it's too soon. I don't want to spoil anything for you. It's a two years old and it's right there. I think it's. Uh, I think the theatrical cut is uh, Amazon Prime. So there you go. If you want to see it, if you haven't seen it already. But man, I just have to say, what a visually beautiful uh, film it is. And I love the psychological aspects of it. Love it. I think it's the best movie of the last several years. So there you go. Way to go, Ari Aster. Excellent job. Okay, great. Are we gonna check in with John? Are we? There is a check-in, but by check-in, I mean he just says hi. So I don't want to mislead you. He just says hi, and then he says bye. Here we are once again. 
everyone, uh, apologies for the uh, difficulties we've had in scheduling. It is the summer. Everybody's doing their best. I hope you're not cracking up. John is here. John, I wanted to say hello. Press for time, but John, how are you? Hi. <laughs> okay. Uh, are you okay? Have you cracked up? I don't think so. Well, that's excellent news. <laughs> I, I don't think so. Let, let's keep hope alive. You all would right. probably be a better judge than me. Well, you know. Uh, all right, everybody, our apologies. We're not going to get much time to talk. All right. And before we move on to have a discussion about Party Down, this time focusing specifically on Kyle Bradway, played by Ryan Hansen. I want to do what I've done every show so far, making a plea for the Louisville Legal Aid Society. That's right. That organization does not endorse this podcast. They haven't asked me to do this. They don't know I'm doing this. This is just something that I believe in. And I want to say to you that if you find yourself in these difficult times with a little extra funds and you want to do something good, you want to give, you want to give to a nonprofit, please consider the Louisville Legal Aid Society. What is it? It is a, an organization that provides legal services to low-income individuals, to homeless individuals, to veterans, to domestic violence victims. And if you feel moved to give, go to www.laslou.org or yourlegalaidwithnoe.org or yourlegalaid.org slash donate. And I think if you go to laslou.org, you'll see a donate button on the top right corner. I think they all lead to the, basically the same page. So there it is. If you feel it in your heart, if you feel the spirit of charity come on you, please consider giving to the Louisville Legal Aid Society, a great organization, a timely organization. And let's move on. Okay, here we go. It is time for the latest installment of the Party Down Discussions. This time, we're talking about Kyle Bradway, played by Ryan Hansen, the great Ryan Hansen. As we mention every week, by we I mean me, uh, Party Down, of course, was a Stars Network show played in 2009 and 2010, created by John Enbaum, Rob Thomas, Dan Etheridge, and Paul Rudd. And most of the shows, it looks like the teleplay is by John Enbaum. And if you want to watch it, if you subscribe to Stars, it's there. If you subscribe to Hulu, it's there. You can buy the DVDs for cheap. You can buy the electronic copies on Amazon. You can buy them on iTunes. A combination. Watch it. You won't regret it. Unless you're humorless. I don't know. Maybe you will then. Anyway, as always, spoilers, 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 spoilers. All the spoilers, okay? So, let's talk specifically about Kyle Bradway. As you recall, we did a deep dive uh, on Casey Klein last week, played by Lizzie Kaplan. Before that, it was Ron Donald, played by Ken Marino. Before that, it's Henry Pollard, played by Adam Scott. And the very first episode was an overview of all the characters. Well, let's talk at length, in depth, 
about Kyle Bradway. Ryan Hansen is incredible in this show, and he deserves so much credit uh, for being a, really the glue in this show, because for all the heartbreak and disappointment and uh, hard luck and hard feelings and lamenting mortality and missed opportunities, Kyle Bradway holds the show together. And, of course, played by Ryan Hansen, a heavy comedic burden. Because while Ron Donald laments his mortality, we cut to Kyle Bradway, who is being... Uh, led around and shining someone's shoes at a funeral. Now, of course, I'm talking about season two, episode four. So you, he, he just provides this great kind of counterbalance to so many things that are happening. And the combination of all of it just makes it such an incredible, incredible show. So thank you, uh, writers. Thank you, creators. Thank you, Ryan Hansen, for the incredible performance. Ryan Hansen, who had a YouTube show, Ryan Hansen Solves Crimes on Television, he was known for being in Veronica Mars, also created by the showrunners here in Party Down. And it looks like uh, he was in a movie that just came out on Netflix called Good on Paper. I have not seen it, but if you want to support Ryan Hansen, you should watch it and then tell Netflix how great he is and ask them to put him in more things. What do you think about that? All right, let's, let's get to it. Uh, and I want to say what's interesting about this Rewatching each time, focusing on a different character. I advise you to do it if you love the show because you pick up on different things. And as I talked earlier about Midsommar, just when you watch each episode and you're focused on a different aspect, you notice different things in the background. You notice different reactions. And Ryan Hansen in particular, you know, watch Kyle in each scene. Great reactions to the things that are going on. Uh, always paying attention, always kind of interacting in his way. So uh, it really puts a different spin on it. Kyle Bradway, well, let's talk about it. His origins, what do we know about him? Well, you know, as the show starts, we know that he's an actor, aspiring actor. We know that he's a singer in the band Karma Rocket. We know that he's a model, or at least former model, he says. Uh, we know that he's handsome with uh, great hair, right? That's kind of a recurrent theme throughout. We learn that uh, he was a class personality. We learn that in Season 1, Episode 9, Ron Donald's High School Reunion. We learn he was the cutest guy, cutest couple, best hair, best smile. So, uh, we also learn that he got his start in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, at uh, the Liar of Orpheus Theater, Season 2, Episode 6, Not on Your Wife, Opening uh, Night. We learn that he had a role as a longshoreman in A View from the Bridge, and that is, uh, I guess, his first acting gig in Los Angeles. We also learn that he got his first kind of opportunity through uh, having relations with casting director, I guess it was, and that kind of touches on some of the themes with Kyle Bradway. One of the themes is um, his expectation that... To advance, you know, there's sort of these transactional relationships. It's, it's his assumption, it's his understanding, and it's kind of a sad thing, isn't it? Kyle is the second most recognized person among the crew. 
Henry, of course, being the most recognized for the uh, Are We Having Fun Yet beer commercials, particularly throughout season one, uh, not so much in season two. They make a point of kind of moving away from that, although, well, the first two episodes he's recognized, Henry is. But beyond that, you know, no one else, I think, points out that Henry is the guy from the beer commercials. But on the other hand, Kyle is recognized throughout for his various roles. And let's name some of those roles. So we learn in the show that he was in Idol Academy. He was in a show called Greek. He was in a show called Society Kids. And he did extra work on Gilmore Girls. We also know that he was in a movie called Jumping Boys. We learned that in season two, and we'll talk more about that. So he's been in these roles. He's recognized. He's in the band Karma Rocket. And one thing we do have to give Kyle credit for is effort. Uh, we're hearing constantly about auditions. He's auditioning for, for various roles. Let's name some of those. He's auditioning for the Palisades. He's auditioning for a movie called Caged Hearts. He's a mis- uh, auditioning for Snow Crash, for Chop Shop, for Velour. Of course, he ends up not going. Henry does instead. That's season two, episode 10, the very last episode of the show to date. So Kyle tries. We learned he's in an acting class, season two, episode five, Steve Gutenberg's birthday. Um, he has has gigs with his band. We know that. So, you know, he's going to Industry Showcase, season two, episode nine at the Rainbow Room, I think he says. So Kyle is trying. Kyle is working. Kyle is giving effort. We also know that he... Uh, is an optimist, I guess you would say, almost an unshakable optimist. He's only shaken once. There's one time, and eh, maybe, no, not one time, season two, episode three, an episode in which everyone is, is miserable, but that is the one time that we see Kyle get shaken from this optimism. Other than that, you know, he's already spent his money. He talks about in season one, episode four, the investor's dinner, the things he's going to buy, the cars, Season two, episode two, he's talking to Leonard Stiltskin about the multiple marriages he's going to have, you know, building this, this fame. So he's almost unshakable, nearly unshakable in his belief, in spite of everything that happens. There's a relentless optimism or expectation that he's going to succeed. Uh, Kyle is not the sharpest tool in the shed. However, that changes i would say episode to episode sometimes he understands more than you would expect based on other comments he's made sometimes he doesn't always always funny kyle is just on fire all the time those you know his moments throughout i think are consistently the funniest in the show three of the very funniest moments are his musical numbers i talked about that in the overview episode season one episode one uh mind jail you, or, aka you stain me is very funny season two episode four the blues the Nobel blues with uh, ron is hilarious and then season two episode 10 my struggle which i think is arguably the funniest moment in the entire series he nails it and it's it's it is of course the writing brilliant brilliant writing but then brought to life by this incredible performance uh so fairly naive he's easily tricked And that happens, you know, with Roman. And speaking of Roman, uh, we have to talk, and we've mentioned these core relationships, Casey and Henry, Ron and Henry, and then Roman and Kyle have a frenemy relationship. They go back and forth, 
typically instigated by Roman, mind you, and then Kyle retaliates. But they also come, uh, are there for each other and help each other in critical and dire moments. We see that Roman's helping Kyle, season two, episode four. Kyle helping Roman, season two, episode eight. Joel Munt's big deal party. Kyle also has a great relationship with Constance. Of course, Constance Carmel, played by Jane Lynch, appears in nine episodes total, season one, episodes one through eight, and then season two, episode 10. But right away, uh, when the show starts, you pick up on how close Kyle and Constance are, and that grows throughout. And then you see them at the end in the wedding episode. It's renewed right away. They're very close. And that's a, it's, it's a, that's just a nice supportive relationship. And it also brings out the best in Kyle, which we'll talk about. There's a moment in season one, episode four, when someone is making fun of Constance and Kyle steps up. So uh, he's, he's kind of faux deep, right? That's kind of a thing with Kyle. He tries he reads Shakespeare, he misquotes him. He's into the doors, but seems to be more into the movie uh, than he is the, the music, or, or so it seems. He's generally kind to people, which goes a long way, in spite of everything, you know, the different things that happen. People like Kyle, and women gravitate to Kyle. Now, part of that is a device to point out what Roman is not, which is kind, uh, or appealing to people and that's a central tension between them and that Kyle doesn't have to try and people are attracted to him Roman on the other hand uh, people are not well one's a jerk one isn't generally so keep that in mind one is also freaking Kyle Bradway played by Ryan Hansen model you know and uh, so we, we, we have all these themes all these important aspects to him Let's talk about some high points. Well, the highest point, arguably, would be season one, episode eight. Celebrate Ricky Sargulish. You have Kyle as the first member of the crew that is recognized. He is recognized for his work in Idol Academy by Ricky. And he's celebrated. They buy drinks for him. They listen to him. The guests do. So it's, it's just a great moment. He has a great time. He's dancing. He's having fun. He's got fans. So that's a high point, of course. Is that the highest point? Well, yes, either that or season one, episode 10, that being the Stenheiser Pong wedding reception, because at the end of that episode, he gets cast in a movie and he thinks it's going to be, you know, his big break. Now, of course, we learn it's party down, right? So season two, that's not what happens. But at least at the end of the first season, that is, he's in a great place. He's got this role. Uh, so, are you know, those are some high points. Another high point, I would say, season two, episode two, that being the Precious Lights preschool auction. He kind of, he gets the last laugh. And he is able to turn the tables on Roman. Roman's attacking him. And he gets Roman to show some vulnerability and apologize for, for attacking him. Uh, we also see some acting skill. We actually see some acting skill from Kyle, the character of course not ryan hansen we know he's great but kyle the character you know kyle the character is able to fool roman with his acting or is he or is he actually hurt maybe a little bit of both but then he takes roman's plan to make money off the x-men comic does it himself so good for him so he he gets the last laugh in that episode and I, that's a high point low point 
Well, there are some of those. The clearest one, of course, is going to be Season 2, Episode 3, Nick DeSinto's Orgy Night. That being when we find out that uh, the movie he was cast in at the end of the first season is called Jumping Boys, and it's being released straight to DVD in Asia. So his big plan to, as he says, jump up to the B-list, that does not happen. But not only does that not happen, a actor there named Mira, who he had done extra work with on Gilmore Girls, gets through and cracks the shell of eternal optimism or unshakable confidence and makes him second-guess himself. He has a moment of doubt, thankfully. Believe it or not, it's Roman. Roman's there to help pick him up. That's a low point. Uh, Season 2, Episode 5, Steve Gutenberg's birthday. He goes to the birthday party with or he invites Colette someone who's a scene partner in an acting class he's out of his depth there's all these conversations you know kind of deep analysis of art and psychological themes he's out of his depth he does not end up with Colette Steve Gutenberg does and then season one episode six that's a low point just because he's in tremendous pain he got his teeth bleached and he's in pain throughout and it ends up costing him an opportunity to be cast in the young Lincoln vampire hunting movie. And there's a theme throughout, and that is missed opportunities. In that episode, season one, episode six, his teeth are, he's in pain, so he misses out on this opportunity to get this role if he had hooked up with the wife of Leonard Stiltskin. I think it's DeAndra's is the character's name. And season two, episode eight, Joel Munt's Big Deal Party. He's going to get cast in a the movie Pride and Prejudice, which is a, a cop movie, but the person who would cast him mistakenly takes a sip of the champagne glass, which has urine in it. He doesn't get that. So we have this kind of theme of missed opportunities happening with Kyle. So close, but not. Best moment, my favorite moments, as I said, all the musical moments are great season one episode one season two episode four season two episode 10 but best moment best let's say best episode favorite performance let's go there favorite performance that's got to be season two episode eight joel Munt's big deal party because that is kyle's episode kyle is everywhere in that episode he's in most scenes i believe He's on fire. He's hilarious. His interactions with Henry, the Papa Locke moment, are great. Uh, he's also there trying to help Roman. Roman's being attacked. The whole party is to give uh, Roman a hard time. He steps up. Scene after scene in Season 2, Episode 8. Kyle is hilarious. That is my favorite Kyle episode. And that's what I'll say best moment with the whole episode everything in it with Kyle is incredible so having stated all that let's let's go episode by episode we're not going to name every single thing that Kyle does but we're going to try and talk about some of the overall character development what does he do why does he do it all right here we go let's talk about season one Okay, season one, episode one, the Willow Canyon Homeowners Annual Party. Our introduction to Kyle right away, he is 
practicing. He's got an audition, a callback for the Palisades. And we see uh, with Constance, we see that relationship right away. We see that he's trying, he's got an auditions, and unfortunately, he's not going to get that role because that relationship with Roman and that tension between them is set off right away. What happens is, and this is kind of a blink if you and you miss it moment, and the time code, are you ready? 14 minutes and 53 seconds. Roman sees Kyle uh, flirting with the homeowner's daughter. And earlier in the episode, it was established that Roman liked or was interested in uh, this young woman. However, she was not interested in him, clearly. Instead, she was attracted to Kyle. And Roman sees it and right away retaliates, pretending to be a producer, which leads to Kyle shaving one of his eyebrows, which leads to, as we learn in the second episode, Kyle not getting the role in the Palisades. But in that episode, uh, we get a glimpse into the depth or the faux depth of Kyle. He talks with Henry. He talks about he's into Shakespeare. He misquotes Shakespeare. Uh, he sings a song, You Stained Me, or Mind Jail, to the homeowner's daughter. And so we get this uh, just hilarious moments, but also this peek inside. Now, one of the questions I've always wondered, how old is the homeowner's daughter? She seems very young. It's not really addressed, but it's one of those open questions. And we know that Roman is creepy with uh, underage girls. That's something we learn in Season 1, Episode 6, The Sweet 16 Party. So... We don't know. It's not addressed, but but you wonder. Interestingly, Kyle is the first person to recognize Henry. Well, maybe second. Casey does. She doesn't say what. She just says, you know, you're that guy. Kyle, on the other hand, Kyle specifically notes, you are the guy from the beer commercials. Are we having fun yet? So right away, Kyle sees that. In Kyle's mind, that's awesome, right? That's 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 something to be, uh, that's a, a goal something to aspire to, whereas for Henry, it's misery. So interesting juxtaposition there. Real is what I'm about. Great line by Kyle. So we have that. We learn that. Even though it doesn't work out, he shaves an eyebrow. Casey prevents him from doing even more damage. But that leads to season two, episode two. Of course, the California College Conservative Union Caucus and... Kyle did not get the job or the role in the Palisades because of the eyebrow. But great interactions with Constance. You know, to his credit, Constance expresses that she's concerned about some uh, intolerance, some homophobia, and uh, Kyle, in his misguided way, tries to step in and, and help. It leads to some, some awkward moments, uh, but he meant well, and it's very funny. So... There's Kyle. Now, Kyle in, tries to retaliate against Roman in this episode, trying to pretend that you know, George Lucas called. Uh, it's, it's, it's clear that it's a ruse, and it's clear that it's not true. It doesn't work. But the seed is planted, right? Roman attacked him in the first episode, so Kyle is trying to get his revenge, which leads us to season one, episode three. Peppa McMaster's single seminar. We get some more backstory. We learn that he once 
slept with this woman twice and thought that she was uh, twins, was not. So we learn more of this kind of naivety or fluctuating intelligence of Kyle. He's initially uh, kind of abrasive and repulsed by the elderly, but to his credit, he has a conversation with a, a gentleman and, and opens his mind, and, and he's, he's respectful, and, and that's to his credit. He does get revenge on Roman. He uses some erectile dysfunction medication and causes great embarrassment. So Roman struck first, Kyle struck back. Also an interesting note in this episode, even though it's 2009, you see the beginnings of the cell phone camera era because there's an issue with a stripper, there's things happening, and if you look in the background, you see that Kyle pulls out the, the old the cell phone. It's a flip phone, I believe, with the camera. All right, let's move on to season one, episode four. And this is a great uh, episode for Kyle, in, in my opinion, because you see this different side. First of all, very funny interactions uh the investors dinner and in the investors dinner we're seeing all these i guess i guess they're venture capitalists they're investors i don't know we're seeing all this wealth now first of all this idea of, of kyle's you know unshakable optimism comes out he's talking with this character kellum who is uh i guess he was born rich born into a, a wealthy family and he's talking to Kellum about, you know, he's basically already spending his money. He's talking about speakers he's going to buy, cars, all these things. Kellum, of course, recognizes him from his role on Greek. Uh, and this is where we see a kindness from Kyle. Kellum is picking on Constance. Kellum is having uh, a laugh, as they say, is is, is kind of making fun of her. Constance doesn't realize it. But Kyle's not okay with that. He is not okay with that. He sees it. He tries to break it up. And then in the end, he stands Kellum up. He, he sends him to go to a club, even though Kyle is not going to show. And he's not going to show because Kellum did Constance wrong. He hurt her, even though she doesn't know it. And so he steps up. And he's supportive at the end. He asks her to go eat. He listens to her. He's kind to her. So, you know, very uh, more, uh, touching moment. And we see this this relationship between Constance and Kyle. Compare that, of course, to the Roman Kyle, uh, which Roman uh, is the one who at least initially makes it you know, adversarial. Season 1, Episode 5. This is the Sensation Awards after party. This is the second of three instances of sort of Kyle versus Roman in terms of getting uh, female attention and females gravitating to Kyle instead of Roman. It happens in the first episode. It happens in this episode. It happens again in season two, episode one. And so to Kyle's credit, he is trying here. He's trying to help Roman. Uh, women are gravitating to Kyle. They are fleeing from Roman. Kyle is trying to advise Roman to just be. It just doesn't work, but he tries. We get more of this backstory, and this is the idea. He, he's talk, Kyle talking about uh, the doors as an inspiration and Jim Morrison as an inspiration. But again, it seems like he's referring to the movie as opposed to the person. Uh, that whole, if you saw the Oliver Stone movie, there's all that 
the visuals and all the metaphor of the Native American spirit being channeled through Jim Morrison and all the trips he goes on in the desert and all those things. And that is what Kyle is using as his his inspiration. He says he channels that to to write for Karma Rocket. So great episode for for Kyle. And he's just he's in his element and he's being himself and people are attracted to that. Compare it to Roman and people are repulsed by Roman. So he tries. Okay. Which takes us to, as I said, season one, episode six. This is a low point just because Kyle's in pain. He had his uh, teeth bleached, which I believe is based on a real experience. And I think that the backstory, as far as I know, is that um, Dan Etheridge, I believe it was, one of the show creators, showrunners, I think this really happened. He got his teeth bleached and he was in pain. And so that was the basis of this this particular uh, plot element. Kyle had his teeth bleached. Kyle is in pain. Roman is on the attack. This is some physical abuse here. He keeps hitting Kyle in the teeth. Kyle's in tremendous pain. And it leads to a missed opportunity. Now, again, I'm not saying this is right. And this is kind of that the, the tragedy or the sadness of this Kyle character that opportunities are going to come if he you know has relations with people, if he uses his body, not on talent alone, not on you know great auditions. It's this extracurricular, all this other these transactional um, issues that are going to lead to Kyle getting roles, and he's just come to accept it, as far as we know. And that, I mean, the character just accepts it as normal. And of course, this is 2021. We've learned so much more about this, this type of uh, tragic underside to to Hollywood. So having said that, it doesn't work out. He is physically in pain and unable to perform, as they say. So he does not get that opportunity. All right, that takes us to Season 1, Episode 7, The Great Brand X Corporate Retreat. And here, Roman is the butt of a joke. Kyle starts off on the attack, uh, gets the whole group to join in on it at Roman's expense, using the movie 300. And so again, the, the back and forth between them. And Kyle also kind of pokes Roman throughout. Kyle knows that Roman is uh, into, has a crush on Casey. Of course, it's not reciprocated, but Kyle knows that's how Roman feels, and he keeps poking Roman throughout, pointing out that Rick Fox and Casey are flirting, and so he's taking his shots. Now, what's interesting about this episode is, to Kyle's credit, he actually tries in the team-building exercises. He and Constance alone show up for all of the activities and pay attention and and try kyle's life tree here's the beauty of high definition if you want to see his life tree you can pause it it's right there in his life tree references mel gibson paul walker and colin farrell so this is the the depth that we learn about uh kyle ron talks about the roots and branches being you know actions and emotions but if you look at the life tree, it's just a list of movies that these actors were in. And uh, like Oscars has uh, the branches being beliefs and 
three Oscars being a belief. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it just emphasizes the point of Kyle not being the deepest person, even though in his mind he is or he tries to be. So uh, very funny stuff from, from Kyle in that episode. And he is a antagonist to Roman in that. Okay, here we go. Season one, episode eight, celebrate Ricky Sargulish. This is it for Kyle. This is just a great high moment. This is a high point. He is the first person, the first member of the crew to be recognized by Ricky, by the attendees of the party uh, for their professional work. In this case, Ricky recognizes Kyle for his work on Idol Academy and from then on, he's, he's, he's getting shots bought for him. He's dancing. He's got people listening to him talking about his acting philosophies. He's telling people to go on MySpace, which is going to be his, his, which is his fan page. Uh, so just a great time for Kyle. This is it. Kyle gets to have an excellent, wonderful time in season one, episode eight. That's the high mark. I would argue. I mean, I, we could say... Maybe when he gets the role at the end of the first season, but I, I think this is it. I uh, also want to point out this dance track. It starts at uh, the 16 minute and 26 second mark, and I think it's one of, it's one of the high points of the whole show. But it, you start here, you first hear it when Casey and Henry come out of the kitchen. It starts playing. You see Kyle dancing. You see Constance dancing. Uh, there's a break. Then it plays, he plays some more, and that's when Ricky's losing his mind, dancing, you know, Steven Weber doing the moves, his, his head spinning, around, his head's twirling around. Uh, what a great track. They should have that on its own. The music is by Josh Craman, and maybe sometime we should have a whole episode talking about music. I don't know, because it is such a, a key element to the show, and it's something that if you're really listening, it's playing throughout just different types and depending on the type of uh, party and all those things. But this track that plays uh, in the Ricky Sargulish episode is excellent, just in bringing out just the madness of what's happening in this episode. And again, it starts at the 16 minute and 26 second mark. All right, here we go. We're getting towards the end of the first season. The next episode is season one, episode nine, James Rolfe High School 20th Reunion. And of course, this is the Ron Donald episode through and through, right? This is where... We see Ron have a terrible, terrible breakdown at the end. His hopes and, and dreams of people respecting him, his, his classmates, seeing the great things he's done uh, in his life comes crashing down. But in terms of Kyle, uh, interesting element here because Kyle, as far as we know, he goes along with the plan to show respect for Ron until the end, till, till he doesn't. But uh, Roman and Kyle do not fight in this episode. This kind of is the foreshadowing to some progress we see in their relationship in the second season. They don't fight. As far as we can see, they get along, they're talking, and we, we do get that backstory. Kyle says that he was voted the cutest guy, he had cute, part of the cutest couple, best hair, best smile. And he claims that he would have got the best eyes, but there was an incident. Uh, someone got blinded I guess at the prom that precluded him from getting that award they didn't give it out so he's always been handsome long story short he's always been handsome people have recognized that uh, but in this episode um, he's he gets along with Roman so that is notable 
All right, which leads to Season 1, Episode 10, The Stenheiser Pong Wedding Reception. We learn in this episode that he, Kyle, he being Kyle, has been auditioning for the the new Holocaust thriller, which Mr. Stenheiser is the producer of, called Caged Hearts. And so he wants to use this opportunity to network some more with Stenheiser. He gets that opportunity and he goes and tells him that he tells Stenheiser that he would do anything for the role. And Stenheiser takes that uh, literally. And so those those kind of transactional issues are right there. Or the casting couch, which I think is what it's referred to in, in common parlance. Stenheiser says, no, I can't. I'm getting married today. And then there's another producer there. And because of this do anything and being highly motivated, uh, he gets cast in Jumping Boys. Well, the movie that we learn later would be Jumping Boys, but he gets cast or he's going to get this role in this base jumping movie, which, you know, I don't know what the plot of, a, of an entire movie about <laughs> base jumping would be, but that's, that's what makes it funny. So that's a great way for him to end the first season. Having said that, there's some other things to talk about in, in, in that episode, season one, episode 10. He does try to help Bobby. Bobby Sinclair has consumed some mushrooms. She's tripping. Uh, Henry is trying to, you know, keep control of the situation so Ron doesn't lose his job. And Kyle does step up and try and help with Bobby. Now, you, you get this comment about a purple tube of consciousness. That's what uh, Bobby says to Kyle. Well, guess what? In season two, episode 10, Roman is the one to say purple tube of consciousness. And Kyle's right there. Kyle's in the near vicinity when he says that. So we see this repetition of things. Here's another thing that we see repeated. In season one, episode 10, Kyle is the first person to look to Henry for guidance. And of course, that sort of starts and sets off the path of Henry becoming team leader which we learn happens and goes throughout season two. In season two, episode 10, Kyle gives Henry the script for Valour, which sets off Henry on this other path of going back to audition. So think about that. Kyle as the catalyst for a new direction for Henry at the end of both seasons. Also being in the area where people are talking about purple tubes of consciousness. So that that's... That theme throughout the show, re repetition. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because life's repetitive. Parties being similar in so many aspects. Henry makes that great comment to uh, Roman in season one, episode five, that the uh, Sensation Awards after party is going to be like every other party, just naked or something like that. How true. All right. So season one ends on a happy note for Kyle. Although, again transactional relationships here we go then let's switch let's talk about season two all right here we go season two uh i just want to say kyle is on fire in season two uh, part of the reason that sitting here today august 2021 i gravitate to season two first 
uh, is because of how great Kyle is in every episode. And just overall, I think that the, because we've been with the characters for a while at that point, we're in the second season, there's just more of a depth. Uh, and it's not just Kyle, it's Ron, it's it's Henry, it's, Kate, it's everyone. And also, which we'll talk about next episode, Roman. There is a depth to Roman. We see more than just the creepy, disturbing elements, abrasive aspects of Roman, although we still hear the abrasive aspects of it. But season two, let's go. It starts off with season two, episode one, Jack Will Nassus backstage party. We learn that, you know, Kyle has a new uh, headshot. He's wearing a unisex chemise. Now, they don't show this directly to the camera but again high definition if you sort of pause you can see it looks like he's wearing sort of like a black blouse or something and he's got his one arm i think up behind his head but you only see it you know through uh, through the photo itself there's no direct shot of it so i don't know maybe that's not maybe i'm wrong maybe that's not what i'm seeing but i want to say this is the third instance in which kyle is able to attract females at Roman's expense or those who Roman wishes to be with because of the differences in who they are and their personalities. And this is even more pronounced because Roman has the advantage of being dressed as Jackal Onassis. He's dressed as this famous rock star. Even in that, Kyle walks up and he is recognized for his role in Society Kids, one of the Females talking to Jack Onassis, of course, it's actually Roman. Kyle comes up. They recognize him from Society Kids. Kyle talks about his power emo band and that they do play gigs. Cherry and Ice Castle, I think he says. So even in that, and even in, fa- in, in spite of the fact that security is called by Jack Onassis, played by Roman, Kyle still says nice. And Kyle... Uh, is able to attract the females, not Roman. And so again, just being Kyle is attractive enough, particularly in comparison to Roman. So a nice Kyle moment there. He gets the upper hand and he recognizes that. He says, I knew I knew that it wasn't Jack Onassis because he didn't have an aura when it's revealed that it was in fact Roman. So starts off right away, new season, new headshot, Things are going Kyle's way, which leads to the second episode, uh, the Precious Lights preschool auction. And in this episode, again, I think this is a high point for for Kyle. We learn that he's got an audition coming up in the the movie adaptation of the sci-fi novel Snow Crash. It says of this tension between Roman and Kyle, Roman likes that novel. He's a big fan of it. It's offensive to him that Kyle would be in it. But Roman sees this opportunity to make money. I have an X-Men comic that's at the auction. He goes to Kyle to ask for help. Kyle says no, you know, particularly in the way he's been treating uh, Kyle. Roman's been on the attack, attack, attack. Kyle appropriately says, why would I give you money? At which point Roman just unleashes a barrage of scathing attacks basically saying Kyle has no skill whatsoever Kyle begins to cry or so it appears but we learn he wasn't 
Or was he? Was there some real pain in it? Probably. But he wasn't actually as upset as he appeared. So we learned that Kyle does have some acting skill. We see it. He uses it against Roman. And not only that, he takes Roman's information and benefits from himself. He's the one who gets the X-Men comic. He's the one who makes money off of it. So there. So it's really excellent moments there. Excellent moments for Kyle. Which leads to oh, a crash. As great as it was for Kyle in the last few episodes, things went well for him. Oh, now we're going to hit a low point, And that is Season 2, Episode 3, Nick DeSinto's Orgy Night. This is the low. First of all, we learn that the base jumping movie is called Jumping Boys. And it is going straight to DVD in Asia. So his big break is not going to happen, unfortunately. Roman, of course, is on the attack. Well, it gets worse. Kyle sees a woman named Mira, who was his, uh, I guess, scene partner, or who was also an extra in Gilmore Girls at some point. She is uh, serving as a nude model. In spite of the awkwardness of it, Kyle still tries to hit on her, tells her that he is auditioning for a movie called Chop Shop, a horror movie, and that, you know, tries to say he'll help her get a role in it. She then cuts him down. She then makes him question, for the first moment, question his ability, his prospects, makes him question whether, in fact, he will make it, because he's been steadfast, unwavering in his belief that he will, but she gets through, pierces that veil, and causes him to doubt and have doubt. And incredibly, it is Roman. Roman steps up. Kyle is crushed. Kyle is shaken. Kyle is at a breaking point. And I think it's the combination. It's the Jumping Boys reveal plus Mira that has shaken him to the core. But Roman steps up. And even if Roman doesn't mean it, Roman tells Kyle that he will make it. And just hearing those words, that's what matters. There's a great moment where uh, Roman goes to grab these bottles and Kyle thinks he's going to hug him, but of course he doesn't. But he does say the words. Roman says the words. You're going to make it. And that's it. And then Kyle comes back to life. And from that point, he, as far as we know, he stays, he stays unshakable. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention also, though, in, in the second episode, the conversation with Leonard Stiltskin, where Kyle is talking about, you know, the multiple marriages he's going to have. So, again, just a sad kind of commentary on his view of relationships. He's already planning out multiple marriages that each and how each will benefit his fame. And he's unwavering in that belief, which makes the next episode that we just talked about, season two, episode three, so devastating for him. He has that moment of doubt. So let's move on to season two, episode four. This is one of the great comedic performances in the whole series, in my opinion. That being the James Ellison funeral, Kyle sees an African-American gentleman playing the blues. He then says, this is it. I want to learn the blues from a real a, a real blues artist. Uh, of course, we learn that this gentleman is a dentist who got a How to Play Guitar video after his retirement. Kyle doesn't know that. And there are just some absolutely hilarious moments. The, the interactions in the bathroom in which Kyle surrenders his belt that's some of the funniest stuff in the whole series 
the Blues number between Ron and, and Kyle regarding the loss of Belt are absolutely hilarious. But Kyle is uh, made the, the butt of a joke by this gentleman. Well, several people are in on it, just laughing at him. And when it's revealed that he is being played for a fool, he takes it in stride. And in, in his own mind, he twists it into somehow it is a lesson. And so you know, Kyle just staying unshakable. There is something to be said to have the resolve to not be shaken, even if people are laughing at you to push through it. Which leads to uh, another rough episode, season two, episode five, Steve Gutenberg's birthday. In this episode, uh, he brings Colette, his scene partner, to the birthday party. She's deep, as he says. She's talking about Nietzsche. She's talking about Carl Jung, all these things. She's talking about the interpretation of, of, uh, of art. And Kyle is out of his depth. And he knows it. And he tries to get help from Casey. He gets made a fool of, similarly to the previous episode with the blues incident. And he plays the character Krond when the group is acting out uh, the works of Roman and his partner. Very funny stuff. It doesn't work out for him with Colette because, again, he's out of his depth. He's, he's, he's Kyle deep. He's not deep deep. And that gets exposed in this episode. So in the end, he ends up hating Steve Gutenberg. So whereas some people have a great time in this episode, Kyle does not. And in fact, we see some jealousy. We see some insecurity uh, about, not, this, not insecurity about his acting or his career, but just personal insecurity about intelligence, uh, being quote-unquote deep. It doesn't work out when he tries to force it hilarious moments but poor Kyle so we see some jealousy we see some insecurity and we don't see any fighting between him and Roman we see them having sort of normal conversation at the end of course Kyle is trying to convince Roman that the first draft was better when it was less deep when it, when it had less emotion to it because that's more beneficial to him but anyway funny stuff Season 2, Episode 6. This is when we get the backstory. This is, as I mentioned earlier, not on your wife, opening night. We learn that uh, Kyle started with a role in Los Angeles uh, at the Lyre of Orpheus Theater, playing a longshoreman in A View from the Bridge. And we also learn that, contrary to what the director thinks, having that role was not the reason he got his first break. The reason that he got his first break was because of transactional relations, the casting couch or what have you. He slept with a casting director and that led to him getting a part. And this being the farce episode, some farcical things happen here. Kyle wants to save the day. Well-meaning, he wants to save the theater. But how does he go about it? Well, you guessed it, by thinking that if he has relations with a wealthy producer that's going to lead to this individual paying the bill that's going to save the theater. Of course, it's a farce. Confusion happens and he ends up uh, sleeping with one of the actors uh, from the play for $50. So this blows up. In the end, though, the theater is saved. So he ends happy. But we see Kyle get 
humiliated in this episode, uh, wearing a ape mask, not so subtle commentary on that aspect of the character. All right. So season two, episode seven, the party down company picnic. We see the competitive element of Kyle when it comes to Valhalla, this is something that we see in season one, episode 10. And then when we see in this episode, Kyle does care, you know, like Casey, he really is trying in his career. He's going to auditions. He's doing the work. But whereas Casey is pretty explicit and not caring whatsoever about the job, Kyle does. And Kyle has some pride in the work he's doing. He tries, he cares to an extent. And so he's offended by Valhalla. He challenges them. You see this competitive nature. He's particularly offended by them, suggesting that they are uh, more handsome, or handsomer than him. And we also have uh, some very misguided mentoring take place in this episode. In this episode, he is mentoring Escapade, the daughter of Lydia, course escapade is 14 years old the advice he's giving is not appropriate to give to a 14 year old but that seems to go over his head now it's a combination of just being funny but also his intelligence uh and again well-meaning but very misguided in what he's doing so funny stuff with escapade we see the competitiveness we see him win the three-legged race with casey but in the end the team gets humiliated and loses to valhalla which leads to season two, episode eight. As I said, my favorite Kyle Bradway performance. My favorite Kyle Bradway episode. Joel Muntz, big deal, party. In this episode, he pays it back. He, he, he pays back positive support to Roman. Whereas in the first season, he, you know, he would retaliate. When Roman struck first, that happened actually earlier in the in, in the season, in the second episode. But in this episode, season two, episode eight, he is paying back Roman's kindness, believe it or not. Roman helping Kyle in the in the third episode, when Kyle had his moment of doubt. In this episode, Kyle steps up and helps Roman. Roman uh, is being humiliated by his former writing partner, Joel Munt, who is rubbing it in his face. The whole party is just to show Roman that Roman was wrong to fire Joel Munt and that Joel Munt is successful and Roman is not. Kyle steps up. First of all, he tries to help uh, Roman with urine instead of champagne. He pushes that throughout. It doesn't work. And actually, even though Kyle is trying to help Roman, uh, it leads to Kyle having a missed opportunity. As I mentioned earlier, uh, he would have had this chance to get cast in Pride or Prejudice, a cop drama. The producer gave him his card. The producer then mistakenly took the drank the urine. The card is taken away. That opportunity is gone. Uh, funny, funny stuff happens in this episode with Kyle. His interactions with Henry, all the Papa Lock stuff are great. But ultimately, in the end, this is Kyle at his cleverest, his most clever, because Kyle takes a security tape, which would has which has some bad uh, footage of old Ron, 
and it saves Ron, but Kyle also uses that as leverage so that he does not get a pay cut due to RDD violations. So this is a very clever Kyle moment. And uh, at the end, the very end of the episode, Kyle steps up. Roman has the ultimate moment of doubt, talking about going to hang himself. And Kyle says, don't you see, this is hope for all of us that that guy, Joel Munt, is successful. And Roman understands, yeah, you're right. If he can do it, then I can. So, good for Kyle. Great moment. Great episode. Now, the next episode, Season 2, Episode 9, I've talked about Kyle's kindness and Kyle, you know, overall, general, generally being nice, being respectful, and then Kyle really, his attacks on Roman being retaliation. Well, this is, this is, a, this is a little bit different here, because in this episode, Cole Landry's draft day party, he is the first one to take a shot at, at Ron. Uh, Ron has some medical issues he's concerned about. Kyle overhears it. Kyle makes fun of Ron. Ron retaliates by denying Kyle the ability to leave early when Kyle has a gig, an industry showcase, a band slot at an industry showcase, the Rainbow Room. So I think it's a big break for his band. Uh, Ron says, no, you're not going to do that. You're using your phone. I told you not to. But what we really see here, this is a retaliation from Kyle making fun of Ron earlier in the episode. Well, then... Kyle retaliates by getting this med student to trick Ron, uh, which leads to a moment of absolute embarrassment for Ron. And in the end, Henry lets Kyle go. So there's no consequences for Kyle. But of this whole thing I've been talking about, Kyle generally being kind, this is kind of a, an exception. Although it's very funny for us, the audience, to see he strikes first against Ron. Oh, uh, here we are. Season 2, Episode 10. Constance Carmel's wedding as of right now August 2021 the end of the series as of now supposedly there'll be more episodes we'll see again we see the renewal of the relationship between Constance and Kyle it's kind of touching they, they genuinely like each other and support each other Kyle this is thoughtful he writes a song for Constance not only did he write a song, but it turns out that a producer, a one-time music producer, Sid Seidelman, is, is there. And so this is an opportunity not just to play the song for Constance, but, but to be discovered by this producer. Although the producer hasn't apparently found anybody recently. He found Seals or something in Seals and Croft. Still, this is an opportunity, right? And that's something throughout. Kyle sees all these parties. If there's an opportunity, he's going to network, he's going to try. Unfortunately, Kyle writes a song that uh, is not a, uh, well thought out. This is a uh, wedding with a number of Jewish people in attendance. Kyle's song, called My Struggle, although well-meaning, written for Constance, he does not pick up on the, the unintentional parallels. And so he's singing this song. It's just that combination of everything coming together, the writing, the time, the, the performance, the way it's shot, everything about it is perfect. As I said earlier, a critical thing happens, which is 
Kyle has this script for Valour. He's got an audition coming up. He doesn't understand it. He gives it to Henry, and that sets off a chain of events. And the series ends with Henry going to that audition. So season one ends with Kyle kind of triggering Henry's leadership, um, becoming team leader eventually. This season ends with Kyle triggering this series of events, which leads to Henry going back to, to auditioning which in turn saves the relationship with Casey or lifts up Casey. So way to go, Kyle. Now, even though the performance is, is a disaster, Kyle's not really shaken by that. And that's, again, that unflappable optimism and belief. Kyle does step up for Roman. He, he's in the bathroom, tries to help him. He ta- Roman has, has had this vision and he has had the, his his breakthrough masterpiece sci-fi idea. It's written down on a, a roll of toilet paper. Kyle is there when Roman's le- uh, put in the ambulance. He takes the toilet paper, so the script is preserved. And in the end, he hands it. He deliver. He reads it, likes it, and delivers it to Roman. So he steps up for Roman. He is there. He's the one who he gets the uh, the roll of toilet paper, which has Roman's masterpiece on it preserves it and gives it to him. So he is there for Roman in that way. But that brings us to the end. That brings us to the end. The the show starts with Kyle in an episode singing a song he wrote to uh, the homeowner's daughter. The series ends with Kyle singing a song to Constance at the wedding. There's not truly an arc. I can't say that there's a progression in the character. He 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 is pretty much the same in the beginning to the end. So there's not, you know, there's not that um revelation that takes place with Kyle, but that's that's who he is. He starts off singing, he ends singing. Now, on the other hand, we do actually see the band perform. The first episode is just him singing in a laundry room. At the end, we do see he has a band. Karma Rocket does exist. Karma Rocket is playing gigs. There they are. And he's he's been cast in, in multiple roles. Some people recognize him. But in terms of the character development, Kyle is Kyle. What you know, what is the lesson? What are the one of the takeaways? Well, I think one of the takeaways with Kyle is that optimism is fun, right? There's something to be said for that steadfast, unshakable belief and that optimism. Kyle seems to be having a good time most of the time. Not always. Things happen as we talk about. Another lesson is, or at least the show is telling us, you know, there are limits on the transactional method of advancement because yes, he got some roles, but he never had that breakthrough. And the Jumping Boys, I'll do anything part, didn't go anywhere and went straight to DVD. At least that's what the show seems to be saying. Uh, conclusions, don't be a jerk like Roman. So optimism is fun. I'm, I'm going to take that away from Kyle. Okay, well, bravo show creators, bravo writers. Bravo, Ryan Hansen as Kyle Bradway. You know, there's a trust when he comes on screen. You're like, this is going to be good. All right, that's it. That was another installment. You know what we're going to do next time? We're going to talk about Roman De Beers in depth. Wow, a lot to talk about there. Okay, that's it. Hey, don't crack up. All right, hang in there. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you're well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Talk to you next time. Don't crack up. Don't crack up.